August. Durleth. August. So, hey, here we are at the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, etc. of August. The second half of August. Here we are. We've got some Donald Wandry. We've got some August Durleth. And uh, do you know something that August Durleth published for Arkham House back in the day? Camilla. Andrew Grace and some other folks talking about Camilla in the future coming up on the show and also going to be doing another one of our writer talks where we talk to writer Zach Ferguson again. You might remember him from an episode of People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos where he talks about uh, Fritz Lang and another one. He talked about Ramsey Campbell way back when and we've had him on here and there. And Anyway, Zach will be joining us later this month and thank you again for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. I'm your host, D.B. Spitzer. This is a daily podcast where you get to listen to a chapter of a short story or a chapter of a horror story or gothic story or anything like that. Folklore, one day at a time, here are a couple of stories, 20 minutes at least, you know, something to, something to keep you going on your commute, your flight, your, your travels, your uh, daily bits and whatnot that you do to keep sane and, well, I don't know, doing dishes or... I don't know, maybe, maybe it's something you like to do when you're barbecuing like me. I like to listen to various podcasts like Ken and Robin talk about stuff in Harmontown while I'm barbecuing out in the backyard. Uh, fun stuff. Anyway, so if you want to keep this podcast going and People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos and us uh, exploring weird fiction and all that kind of fun stuff, be sure to check out pgttcm.podbean.com and become a patron. Not Patreon. We don't go with Patreon. Or you can go to paypal.me slash pgttcm and donate whatever you think is going to help us keep going. If you want to do it on a regular basis, that's great. If you want to just do a one-time thing, that's cool too. And if you don't want to send us money, you just want something cool in return, go to threadless.com. Look for pgttcm slash dot. I don't know which one it is. But just look for PGTTCM on Threadless.com. And get a shirt, get a tote bag, whatever. It helps support the show and keeps us going. We've got some cool designs up right now for logos for the show. We've got Cthulhu designs. We've got various weird fiction authors and horror authors uh, t-shirt designs. And got a new Ratfink-inspired Sathogwa t-shirt up there right now. And all right. Thank you so much. And remember to rate, review, subscribe wherever you rate, review, and subscribe. Carmilla by J. Sheridan LeFanu Read by Elizabeth Clett Chapter 15 Ordeal and Execution As he spoke, One of the strangest-looking men I ever beheld entered the chapel at the door through which Carmilla had made her entrance and her exit. He was tall, narrow-chested, stooping, with high shoulders, and dressed in black. His face was brown, and dried in with deep furrows. He wore an oddly-shaped hat with a broad leaf. His hair, long and grizzled, hung on his shoulders. He wore a pair of gold spectacles, and walked slowly with an odd, shambling gait, with his face sometimes turned up to the sky, 
and sometimes bowed down towards the ground, seemed to wear a perpetual smile. His long, thin arms were swinging, and his lank hands, in old black gloves ever so much too wide for them, waving and gesticulating in utter abstraction. "'The very man!' exclaimed the general, advancing with manifest delight. "'My dear Baron, how happy I am to see you! I had no hope of meeting you so soon!' He signed to my father, who had by this time returned, and leading the fantastic old gentleman, whom he called the Baron, to meet him. He introduced him formally, and they at once entered into earnest conversation. The stranger took a roll of paper from his pocket, and spread it on the worn surface of a tomb that stood by. He had a pencil-case in his fingers, with which he traced imaginary lines from point to point on the paper, which from their often glancing from it together at certain points of the building, I concluded to be a plan of the chapel. He accompanied what I may term his lecture, with occasional readings from a dirty little book, whose yellow leaves were closely written over. They sauntered together down the side aisle, opposite to the spot where I was standing, conversing as they went. Then they began measuring distances by paces, and finally they all stood together, facing a piece of the side wall, which they began to examine with great minuteness, pulling off the ivy that clung over it, and wrapping the plaster with the ends of their sticks, scraping here and knocking there. At length they ascertained the existence of a broad marble tablet, with letters carved in relief upon it. With the assistance of the woodman, who soon returned, a monumental inscription and carved escutcheon were disclosed. They proved to be those of the long-lost monument of Mercalla, Countess Karnstein. The old general, though not, I fear, given to the praying mood, raised his hands and eyes to heaven, in mute thanksgiving for some moments. "'To-morrow,' I heard him say, "'the commissioner will be here, and the inquisition will be held according to law.' Then turning to the old man with the gold spectacles, whom I have described, he shook him warmly by both hands, and said, "'Baron, how can I thank you? How can we all thank you?' You will have delivered this region from a plague that has scourged its inhabitants for more than a century. The horrible enemy, thank God, is at last tracked." My father led the stranger aside, and the general followed. I know that he had led them out of hearing, that he might relate my case, and I saw them glance often quickly at me as the discussion proceeded. My father came to me, kissed me again and again, and leading me from the chapel, said, it is time to return, but before we go home, we must add to our party the good priest, who lives but a little way from this, and persuade him to accompany us to the Schloss. In this quest we were successful, and I was glad, being unspeakably fatigued when we reached home. But my satisfaction was changed to dismay, on discovering that there were no tidings of Carmilla. Of the scene that had occurred in the ruined chapel, no explanation was offered to me, and it was clear that it was a secret which my father for the present determined to keep from me. The sinister absence of Carmilla made the remembrance of the scene more horrible to me. The arrangements for the night were singular. Two servants and Madame were to sit up in my room that night, 
and the ecclesiastic with my father kept watch in the adjoining dressing-room. The priest had performed certain solemn rites that night, the purport of which I did not understand any more than I comprehended the reason of this extraordinary precaution taken for my safety during sleep. I saw all clearly a few days later. The disappearance of Carmilla was followed by the discontinuance of my nightly sufferings. You have heard, no doubt, of the appalling superstition that prevails in Upper and Lower Styria, in Moravia, Silesia, in Turkish Serbia, in Poland, even in Russia, the superstition, so we must call it, of the vampire. If human testimony, taken with every care and solemnity, judicially, before commissions innumerable, each consisting of many members, all chosen for integrity and intelligence, and constituting reports more voluminous perhaps than exist upon any one other class of cases, is worth anything, it is difficult to deny, or even to doubt, the existence of such a phenomenon as the vampire. For my part, I have heard no theory by which to explain what I myself have witnessed and experienced, other than that supplied by the ancient and well-attested belief of the country. The next day the formal proceedings took place in the chapel of Karnstein. The grave of the Countess Mercala was opened, and the general and my father recognized each his perfidious and beautiful guest, in the face now disclosed to view. The features, though a hundred and fifty years had passed since her funeral, were tinted with the warmth of life. Her eyes were open. No cadaverous smell exhaled from the coffin. The two medical men, one officially present, the other on the part of the promoter of the inquiry, attested the marvellous fact that there was a faint but appreciable respiration and a corresponding action of the heart. The limbs were perfectly flexible, the flesh elastic, and the leaden coffin floated with blood, in which to a depth of seven inches the body lay immersed. Here, then, were all the admitted signs and proofs of vampirism. The body, therefore, in accordance with the ancient practice, was raised, and a sharp stake driven through the heart of the vampire, who uttered a piercing shriek at the moment, in all respects such as might escape from a living person in the last agony. Then the head was struck off, and a torrent of blood flowed from the severed neck. The body and head was next placed on a pile of wood, and reduced to ashes, which were thrown upon the river and borne away, and that territory has never since been plagued by the visits of a vampire. My father has a copy of the report of the Imperial Commission, with the signatures of all who were present at these proceedings, attached in verification of the statement. It is from this official paper that I have summarized my account of this last shocking scene. End of chapter 15 Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you rate, review, and subscribe. Help support the show so that we don't have to have advertisements from other people, or even us even, by going to pgttcm.threadless.com and 
picking up a t-shirt or two, or you can always go to paypal.me slash pgttcm and donating a couple of dollars or going to pgttcm.podbean.com and joining our patron program. And all right, thank you so much. And back to the story. Carmilla by J. Sheridan LeFanu Read by Elizabeth Clett Chapter 16 Conclusion I write all this, you suppose, with composure, but far from it. I cannot think of it without agitation. Nothing but your earnest desire so repeatedly expressed could have induced me to sit down to a task that has unstrung my nerves for months to come, and reinduced a shadow of the unspeakable horror which years after my deliverance continued to make my days and nights dreadful, and solitude insupportably terrific. Let me add a word or two about that quaint Baron Vordenberg, to whose curious lore we were indebted for the discovery of the Countess Mercalla's grave. He had taken up his abode in Graz, where, living upon a mere pittance, which was all that remained to him of the once princely estates of his family in Upper Styria, he devoted himself to the minute and laborious investigation of the marvellously authenticated tradition of vampirism. He had at his fingers' ends all the great and little works upon the subject. Magia Postuma, Phlegon de Mirabilibus, Augustinus de Cura Promortuis, Philosophicae et Christiane Cogitationes de Vampiris, by John Christopher Herrenberg, and a thousand others, among which I remember only a few of those which he lent to my father. He had a voluminous digest of all the judicial cases, from which he had extracted a system of principles that appeared to govern, some always and others occasionally only, the condition of the vampire. I may mention, in passing, that the deadly pallor attributed to that sort of revenants is a mere melodramatic fiction. They present in the grave, and when they show themselves in human society, the appearance of healthy life. When disclosed to light in their coffins, they exhibit all the symptoms that are enumerated as those which proved the vampire life of the long-dead Countess Karnstein. How they escape from their graves, and return to them for certain hours every day, without displacing the clay or leaving any trace of disturbance in the state of the coffin or the cerements, has always been admitted to be utterly inexplicable. The amphibious existence of the vampire is sustained by daily renewed slumber in the grave. Its horrible lust for living blood supplies the vigor of its waking existence. The vampire is prone to be fascinated with an engrossing vehemence, resembling the passion of love, by particular persons. In pursuit of these, it will exercise inexhaustible patience and stratagem, for access to a particular object may be obstructed in a hundred ways. It will never desist, until it has satiated its passion, and drained the very life of its coveted victim. But it will, in these cases, husband and protract its murderous enjoyment with the refinement of an epicure, 
and heighten it by the gradual approaches of an artful courtship. In these cases, it seems to yearn for something like sympathy and consent. In ordinary ones it goes direct to its object, overpowers with violence, and strangles and exhausts, often at a single feast. The vampire is, apparently, subject in certain situations to special conditions. In the particular instance of which I have given you a relation, Mercala seemed to be limited to a name, which, if not her real one, should at least reproduce, without the omission or addition of a single letter, those, as we say, anagrammatically, which compose it. Carmilla did this. So did Milarca. My father related to the Baron Vordenberg, who remained with us for two or three weeks after the expulsion of Carmilla, the story about the Moravian nobleman and the vampire at Karnstein churchyard, and then he asked the Baron how he had discovered the exact position of the long-concealed tomb of the Countess Mercala. The Baron's grotesque features puckered up into a mysterious smile. He looked down, still smiling on his worn spectacle-case, and fumbled with it. Then, looking up, he said, I have many journals, and other papers, written by that remarkable man. The most curious among them is one treating of the visit of which you speak, to Karnstein. The tradition, of course, discolors and distorts a little. He might have been termed a Moravian nobleman, for he had changed his abode to that territory, and was, besides, a noble. But he was, in truth, a native of Upper Styria. It is enough to say that in very early youth he had been a passionate and favoured lover of the beautiful Mercala, Countess Karnstein. Her early death plunged him into inconsolable grief. It is the nature of vampires to increase and multiply, but according to an ascertained and ghostly law. Assume at starting a territory perfectly free from that pest. How does it begin, and how does it multiply itself? I will tell you. A person, more or less wicked, puts an end to himself. A suicide under certain circumstances becomes a vampire. That spectre visits living people in their slumbers. They die, and almost invariably, in the grave, develop into vampires. This happened in the case of the beautiful Mercala, who was haunted by one of those demons. My ancestor, Vordenberg, whose title I still bear, soon discovered this, and in the course of the studies to which he devoted himself, learned a great deal more. Among other things, he concluded that suspicion of vampirism would probably fall, sooner or later, upon the dead countess, who in life had been his idol. He conceived a horror, be she what she might, of her remains being profaned by the outrage of a posthumous execution. He has left a curious paper, to prove that the vampire, on its expulsion from its amphibious existence, is projected into a far more horrible life, and he resolved to save his once-beloved Mercala from this. He adopted the stratagem of a journey here, a pretended removal of her remains, and a real obliteration of her monument. When age had stolen upon him, and from the veil of years, he looked back on the scenes he was leaving, he considered, in a different spirit, what he had done, and a horror took possession of him. 
He made the tracings and notes which have guided me to the very spot, and drew up a confession of the deception that he had practiced. If he had intended any further action in this matter, death prevented him. And the hand of a remote descendant has, too late for many, directed the pursuit to the lair of the beast. We talked a little more, and among other things he said was this. One sign of the vampire is the power of the hand. The slender hand of Mercala closed like a vice of steel on the general's wrist when he raised the hatchet to strike. But its power is not confined to its grasp. It leaves a numbness in the limb it seizes, which is slowly, if ever, recovered from. The following spring my father took me on a tour through Italy. We remained away for more than a year. It was long before the terror of recent events subsided, and to this hour the image of Carmilla returns to memory with ambiguous alternations. Sometimes the playful, languid, beautiful girl, sometimes the writhing fiend I saw in the ruined church. And often from a reverie I have started, fancying I heard the light step of Carmilla at the drawing-room door. End of Carmilla by J. Sheridan LeFanu Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you rate, review, and subscribe. Help support the show so that we don't have to have advertisements from other people, or even us even, by going to pgttcm.threadless.com and picking up a t-shirt or two, or you can always go to paypal.me slash pgttcm and donating a couple of dollars, or going to pgttcm.podbean.com and joining our patron program. And all right, thank you so much, and back to the story.